You are listening to Equilibrium by Peace. My name is Serene Slabbert, and today we're talking to Mackenzie Griffler, Tara Hess, Amber Barnes, and Julia Magnus from the Open Sanctuary Project. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here today. Um, I'm so excited for this conversation. Back in 2020, 2021, we had the team on to do a bunch of webinars. Um, that people can find. I think the links are on your pages as well um, with regards to starting a sanctuary as well as food for thought. Um, Both those are highly recommended to anybody who wants to start a sanctuary. Um, So yes, that is available on our website under classes as well if anybody wants to go take a look at those. I honestly, sometimes I feel there's just so much information out there and you guys are just always upping it. And you're just like constantly adding new things for people to learn. And it's just such an amazing resource. I'm just seeing it grow in the last how many years? How many years have you guys been going now, Mackenzie, if you don't mind telling? Um, Since late 2017, early 2018. So this is our fifth year of operation. Yeah, and it's amazing Um, for anybody who wants to go take a look at it. We use a lot of their resources on our side, like we uh, created that roadmap for farm sanctuaries and, and the team helped us with that. So again, thank you so much for everybody being on here today. And I'm so excited to talk about some fun stuff about farm sanctuaries. Um, my first question actually is um, the concept of farm sanctuary as an organization, not as like a, a private, somebody does it on their own by their at their house, but the concept of farm sanctuary as an organization, only it's really young. It's only been around since the 80s. I think Farm Sanctuary New York is like one of the first ones. Um, in your minds, when someone says, well, there's only this MX amount of animals at the place, could they even consider themselves calling them a sanctuary? What is your thoughts on that? Because I have had personally people come to me and say, oh, they only have like five animals at their sanctuary. Can they even call themselves a sanctuary? I, w- I would love your team's feedback on that. I think Julia, you have. Yeah, I, I think we're all waiting for Julia to. <laughs> we're all waiting for first. Julia to come. Look at that face. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> so um, I think from, from my lens, sanctuary is not about numbers per se. It's about um, the lens through which you view your residents and the way in which you treat them. So fundamentally to me, it has nothing to do with quantity of animals. And in fact, oftentimes when it comes to quantity and the need to get more and more animals to sort of legitimize or justify yourselves as as a nonprofit or as a sanctuary um, can lead to problems with issues like capacity And then, in fact, standards can fall maybe perhaps below what we might consider to be compassionate practices um, and best practices for farmed animal sanctuaries. And uh, two of us here have micro sanctuaries. Um, Tara has one and I have one. Um, I don't think that my micro sanctuary is any less a sanctuary just because I have 20 animals versus, you know, a hundred. Um, and in fact, I, I, I never want to be more than a micro sanctuary because for me, care standards are the most important critical thing. And I'm basically at a capacity where I know if I need to at any given point, I can get someone to the vet, I can get them appropriate care, and I'm not going to bust the bank doing it. And 
everyone gets the individualized attention that they deserve on a daily basis. Just to, um, you know, sort of spin off what, what Julia said, I, I think this, this, you know, lumping together of like sanctuary is always something like a nonprofit or, you know, a really big organization that has staff, volunteers, a bunch of residents, you know, a bunch of different species. Um, it's just like, for me, it's, it's funny. Cause I do, I live with a, a rooster companion in our house and we were on a call. Some of the open sanctuary project team members were on a call with Alistair from micro sanctuary resource center. And it was sort of mentioned by someone, I don't know if it was Julia or Alistair that like, Oh, like, you know, Tara like has a micro sanctuary. And I was like, like, what? Like, do I, you know, and it was just, and I think it's because I have sort of come up in this, um, having worked at a large sanctuary, I've come up with this idea that I didn't realize that it's like sanctuary is this. And I never would have been like, oh, they have five animals. They're not a sanctuary. But thinking about myself, I was like, oh, yes, like, this, this is a, is a thing. So I think it's just, um, it's just, a, I feel like it's a really common notion that I come across in the sanctuary world and one that like I have perpetuated and has sort of filtered how I even view what, what I do partially probably because my first experience with sanctuary was farm sanctuary, which is huge. And then I worked at farm sanctuary and, um, it's obviously very different, but now caring for someone in a micro sanctuary setting, I will say like, you know, we talk about individualized care and the importance of that, which I stand by a hundred percent, but until I cared for cantaloupe is my rooster friend. Um, like until I cared for him in my home, I didn't really think about the different levels of individualized care, right? Like it's, it's a spectrum you can have no individualized care where like animals don't have names and they don't, they are looked at as a collective, but I feel like the, uh, the degree of individualized care you can provide does change depending on your capacity and who you're caring for and your relationship with them. So it's been interesting to see just, um, and sort of reflect on what goes on with cantaloupe in our house and how that would have been in a setting where he was one of, you know, not, thousands, not hundreds, but still like one of like a dozen, two dozen, you know, someone who isn't living right here with me. And I'm like popping in and out and doing other things and just how that really changes. Like I know more about him than I know about any other like animal I've cared for in my caregiving career, just because of the, you know, there's like an intimacy that comes with living with someone. So long story short is it is sanctuary. And I feel like there are just so many um, benefits that, that come with it. So instead of looking at it as like, oh, like you only care for, you know, two animals or five animals, it's sort of like, think about the care that those two or five animals can get, which is really incredible. Yeah. I definitely want to tag on to that as well, that <clears throat> micro sanctuary is a concept, which was, um, I, I guess the term was originated by Alistair Van Cleek and, and Rosemary then Cleek, uh, and they founded the Micro Sanctuary Resource Center in order to help people get started in that practice. The other thing is about it is that in an ideal world, right, every animal would have a home and 
there wouldn't be distinctions between animals who we currently conventionally consider to be companions such as cats and dogs and say a chicken friend. Um, for many people who might be interested in sanctuary as a concept and practice, the current model that most people think of, which is the large scale model with hundreds of acres and hundreds of animals potentially is inaccessible um, to most people. Partly because most people don't have access to that kind of land and there may be systemic things at, at play that also exclude populations of people who, who've been traditionally disenfranchised from land ownership and stuff like that, where micro sanctuary as a practice is accessible to basically anyone who wants to do it. And in urban settings, you can do it. I know people who have a chicken in their apartment in, in a city. Um, I, I exist in the middle of a city with <clears throat> 20 animals. And it's, it's possible to do it with this specialized individualized care and it creates more homes for the animals and more opportunities for people to practice sanctuary and participate in sanctuary and expands the community in a way I think is incredibly important. Yeah, and I just wanna add here um, just quickly, and then I think Mackenzie, you wanted to say something, but I just wanted to add with regards to, if you do look at taking in an individual at your space, at your home in the city, do check your bylaws, we do get a lot of calls, for, especially with regards to roosters, because people hatch eggs and they don't check their bylaws that they're not allowed roosters or they think they can just find a home and they can't. Um, so that's just my two cents, because I think there is some chain differences, I think, within the U.S. and Canada, because I think some individuals you need to live on farmland, like farm status land. Um, to be able to have them like pigs. But I think chickens, if you're allowed backyard hens in your city, um, that's an amazing opportunity for these micro sanctuaries, which I think is such an amazing form of activism and more homes, right? Like like you were talking about with regards to sustainability and that one-on-one -on -one personal care that you really like that Tara was talking about that you're able to give them and get to know them as a person and they're individual quirks and everything like that. So Mackenzie, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I think I just wanted to add that it's important with any collective of an individual and residents or an organization and residents or really anything that involves the care of animals or the purported care of animals. I think what we always come back to is like, you kind of just have to discard the, the labels that people use or that even organizations use or what they say in their mission. And you just have to look at their practices. And to me, that is what sanctuary is, is are you minimizing exploitative practices to animals as best you can? And from there, you know, I think you just have to just get really critical and, and always be striving to do better for your residents. And I think that's the core of sanctuary. And it's never been about the numbers and you know great care can happen at huge sanctuaries great care can happen in a home environment and the reverse is true as well so i always just encourage individuals to get curious and look at really organizations and what they're providing rather than the words that they might use to describe their care i think just one question i have is 
I think when it comes to micro sanctuary, within the sanctuary community, it's already, as many of us know, there can be strifes with regards to fundraising, volunteer sharing. I'm saying could be if there isn't a good relationship going on and if you're too close together. But when it comes to micro sanctuaries, I think that the, what makes the difference between just having them as quote unquote pets, as you, um, Julia mentioned, or, and being a sanctuary, like being able to put on their social media that they're a sanctuary. Is that like a, how can we, and asking for funds. I think that's the thing. If you're, you know, like if you're a nonprofit organization, you might do fundraising and all those kind of things. But like as a micro sanctuary, when is it just, you're just taking in an individual as a pet rather than promoting yourself as a micro sanctuary, which could in a sense lead into more of a nonprofit. So this, I feel like Julia is going to have thoughts as well. Um, but like this came up in that conversation that I was mentioning when we were on a call with um, Alistair Van Cleek. First of all, I feel like this notion that every sanctuary is a nonprofit, like obviously they shouldn't be like for profit, but that you're going to be like a formalized organization and fundraise and all these things, like that's sort of like an that's not how it has to be. And that was what I was saying when I was like, oh yeah, I never really thought of myself as like a micro sanctuary because I don't have like a name. Like it's not like we're like, you know, cantaloupes, like micro sanctuary or something like that. Um, and I don't, I think what I, exactly what I said was, you know, when we adopted cantaloupe, we were just adopting him and like welcoming him as a member of our family. And it wasn't some Thing, right? It wasn't something where I was going to make like a Facebook page and like post about it and announce it and fundraise and all these things. Like he was just a member of our family. And Alistair was like, but that's it. Like that is like, that is micro sanctuary. So I think it's, it's getting into this. I feel like I've seen MRC post this thing that's like micro sanctuary is like a state of mind or something like that. Am I making that up? Um, but it's like, I feel like it's the the essence of what you're doing. And it's not that like, look at what I am and now I'm fundraising. So I feel like there isn't a difference. Like that's the thing, like there isn't a difference. I think what makes it different is that society views certain animals as companion animals traditionally and other animals not. And so when you are doing this like sort of like revolutionary thing of saying that like this animal that society has decided is food produces food whatever is a companion a family member in my home like that in and of itself to me is like what makes it micro sanctuary or sanctuary in general in general right like we're saying that these animals are individuals and worthy of the same care as anybody else I, I like 100% agree with everything Tara just said, and also kind of want to tag on that one of the, another distinction that was drawn between your traditional 501c3 model, nonprofit model of sanctuary versus potentially grassroots rescues or grassroots micro sanctuaries is in one sense that the larger scale model is more about profession and the smaller grassroots model is more about lifestyle. And I think another point that Alistair raised at one point was, was the question of, you know, if you're adopting a cat, are you gonna do fundraising 
when you take in that cat? And most people don't, right? So why, you know, why is it different if you take in a rooster? Um, it's, it's the fundraising aspect of it. Part of it, you know, for me, my micro is again, like Tara's, it's completely grassroots. I don't ask for funding for, from anybody. And um, I, I keep my numbers and my capacity in a way that um, I don't need to, because it's just part of my lifestyle to, to live with these animals as companions. It's not something that I've ever thought about um, asking for funding for. It's just how, how we live. Um, so when it comes to like, I, I don't know whether you're asking, is there, is there a line um, that when you cross that line, a micro sanctuary now becomes a sanctuary and is that line fundraising? If that's the question, then I would say that is not the line. Um, I think it's about care and it's about um, compassionate care for your residents, regardless of species. Yeah, I think I was, I was more going from when can you consider it more like a personal, um, like you both mentioned about, they're just companions in my house that I sell fund, similar to the PEP model, um, compared to when do you, it becomes more organizational. And because some micro sanctuaries might already look at themselves more organizational and do fundraising and things like that. So I think it was just figuring out that line between someone coming on as just a companion pet versus being an organizational micro sanctuary. I think that has to be just fully personal. It has to just be the decision of how public do you want to, you know, like make your life and do you have aspirations for other missions beyond the care of like a residents or a few residents and do you want to try to educate people do you want to try to like get them to meet your residents or is it strictly something that you're doing entirely for the resident and um but yeah i think it just depends on the individual and i don't think there is like a real line to be found it just depends on how you want to organize your life just like we can all organize our lives in so many different ways and you know it's if if you have a spurt like really aspirations to have a macro sanctuary and have the land and you know obviously we always recommend starting small anyways and volunteering anyways but you know there's there's a infinite ways that you can organize yourself and that you can help animals and like not even all of those ways include starting a sanctuary or even being involved with direct animal care. You can help make a website for a sanctuary. A sanctuary would love that. You can like just help them run their social media posts and like, or you, maybe you're an accountant and like you wanna donate some accounting time. That's all helping animals. So I think it's important to always broaden the scope of what it means to really be a part of really improving animal lives beyond just like, I need to stop everything, learn everything I can about helping cows, helping pigs, helping sheep, helping goats, and then get land and then improve the land and then build like there. It doesn't have to be this cascading thing. It certainly can be. And, you know, there are many successful sanctuaries out there that are doing wonderful things for animals, but I always really encourage people to broaden their perspective on what it can be to, to really help animals and kind of step away from the idea that it has to look this one way. 
one thing I'll say is, it, you know, if there are people who watch this and are like really like haven't heard of Micro Sanctuary before, or like really interested, uh, Micro Sanctuary Resource Center is the place to go to like read all that information about like. You know. Yeah, I um, actually had him on. Um, we we're already recorded a podcast regards to Micro Sanctuary. Oh, nice. So they will have a beautiful. Oh, great. Because they're yeah, I, I love listening to them talk about Micro Sanctuary very knowledgeable but i agree the the website's very useful and they also offer grants and things for individuals starting up which is great so Mm -hmm. do go check that out but leading from what mackenzie was saying about going and working with sanctuaries that's always been like the number one like go volunteer with them for a year see all the seasons see what it involves if you're going to try and start your own um Fostering, and especially if you're wanting to start a farm sanctuary yourself or a micro sanctuary yourself, it's really important to foster a positive relationship. And your team has this great resource on your website, positive, um, fostering positive relationships between animal sanctuaries. Um, so if anybody wants to go check that out, is there any, any, I guess it's a hard thing to think of because even within this community, I think there's this idealism that everybody's just kumbaya, happy working together. Um, but when you look across the board with businesses, with even within um, animal rescue, when it comes to more companion, what you consider companion animals like dogs and cats, there's always these hard things, um, personality conflicts and things like that. But what's one tip? Do any of you have like um, some key things or one tip for anybody who's starting a farm scene tree um, and know the location they want to be at is close to another already established farm sanctuary. Do you have any one tip? Um, make friends, like really, if you can, like, because, you know, there's a lot of really valid reasons why people might feel kind of bad to say, it's simply that like another organization starts up right next to them. You know, there's the, the scarcity mindset that like, you know, they're, they're going to cut into our volunteers. They're going to cut into our funding or like, you know, it's going to get weird between us because we were the only people in the area doing this. And now there's this other organization, but, you know, I think, I think being on friendly terms with another organization opens up so many opportunities, even if, you know, you need to create respectful distance in certain categories, um, you know, and that can be as simple as just like share your calendar with them and ask them what their calendar is. So you don't coordinate events on the same day. Like that's a major thing. Or like, maybe you can get to the point where you can do events together, but like, you know, just making sure you're not stepping on toes and like, you know, like, oh, their annual gala is on like this day. Maybe we shouldn't have ours the day before or something like just be, be aware of the community and be aware of where people are going and just recognize that, um, you know, this other organization is trying their best and, you know, they might not know about you, like, especially if you're just moving to the area and starting an organization, and I think it's just really important to like make contact and be and be friendly. And like, I think a major thing that we recommend in that resource is like, don't just like, if you have to say no to a rescue, do not just like send them to that other organization or that first to asking that organization if it's okay to send people because like then suddenly you're sending maybe a desperate individual to this organization that also doesn't have capacity. And then they look like 
somehow worse in this organization, like in, in the community for some reason, like just try to keep open communication channels and try to keep it cordial because I think so many issues between sanctuaries could be so easily resolved just with more transparent communication and just a little bit of spirit of goodwill and patience. And if I you would, work together, acknowledge that, right? Like if you do something together, if you team up together, um, like acknowledge the folks who are involved. Cause I think that's something I've seen in the past too. It's a source of, you know, ill will. If it's like, you know, you're on Facebook saying like, look at this rescue we did. And you're like omitting the fact that the individual went somewhere else first and like, you know, someone drove them or did the rehabilitation or whatever. Um, like, really like acknowledging that it's a team effort when it is. Sorry, Amber, I felt like we were talking at the same time. Uh, no, I mean, like that's a, a huge thing. Um, just, you know, it's that, you know, taking that space, just being aware of, of the space that you inhabit and the space that they inhabit within the community, you know? Um, and one thing I would add that I just saw recently in the past year, and it wasn't a farmed animal sanctuary, it was a parrot sanctuary, um, but there, they had um, a disaster essentially, but they had, they had a good contingency plan, which was great, which really helped a lot of things um, um, that could have been worse uh, there, but there had been another, um, uh, you know, similar organization with some different ideas about things, right? Some different uh, philosophy of care, um, which so that could lead to some contention, but when they were in trouble, um, they had a fire, they showed up, they just showed up and delivered food because they knew that like the shed had like with all the food in it like they they showed up to lend a hand and like so it's like even when there are times where like you may not be completely on board with everything or agree you know exactly on um any number of of things uh, you can still show up for them show up for the animals in a way and that can really improve um and really solidify you know, like, like now that now they have this even more communication before they weren't even really talking so much, but when they had heard this other organization, just, you know, they even, you know, they had, they have different followers, so to speak. And so they had some of their followers, even like they told them the situation they donated. So even from their own, like pool of, you know, of people, they were like, Hey, this other place, this is, you know, this is what's happening with their birds and, you know, with, you know, with them. And, they showed up and donated a whole lot of food and things to help them cover things until they could get uh, better temporary, you know, like uh, housing. I, I think that everyone really covered that beautifully. And the only thing that I would really want to underline is instead of maintaining or fostering a, an attitude of scarcity, it can be very helpful to consider um, to consider the work from a mutual aid perspective and consider that none of this is a competition unless someone decides to make it one. Like you can make that choice that all of a sudden you're, com you're competing with this other organization and that doesn't really help anyone. Instead, you can consider how you can complement one, one another. And, and as Amber pointed out, in, in situations of crisis, those strengths, and complementary abilities of different organizations can really be highlighted. Um, you know, I think about cockfighting busts here when lots of different groups from all over the country and came together to help work on these birds and get them all placement. 
And nobody was about the fighting at that point. Everyone was about the animals and it was not about competition. Uh, it was about highlighting each other, being grateful for the assistance everyone brought to bear. And um, that mutual aid mindset to me is a much more helpful lens than that of this sort of scarcity mindset. And I would add um, another point that we bring up in that resource that I think is important is Yes, there will probably be times that you don't agree with every single thing. Rarely do two animal advocates who might agree on 99% of everything agree on 100% everything. And it's that last 1% that really is sticky almost always. And it's a lot, it's very easy to lose sight of that 99%. And, you know, if you for some reason like really disagree with an organization or feel, I don't know, slighted or something, please consider before you maybe like do a call out publicly because that doesn't help animals um it just kind of makes the community look hostile and from the outside people just see conflict and you know the sanctuary movement is it, it's a very you know there's more sanctuaries there's more micro sanctuaries every day but you know it's still a pretty close-knit community and I think there's there's more way more downside about like publicly calling out another organization for something than the benefits tangibly to animals and you know I think it's important for us always to keep that bottom line the the real purpose of sanctuary in mind when we're doing anything with sanctuaries you know like what is this doing to help animals or how is this furthering the mission of anti-speciesism or collective liberation. And if it's really just to put down another organization, maybe reconsider it a little bit. The the one thing that I do find within the sanctuary community, and it's it's funny because if you apply it to real life, it's very much to about ourselves creating our own wills. Um, I find a lot of people drag their feet unless something big's coming up and they're like, I should really create my will. Um, Contingency as well as succession planning is such a hard thing. And I do feel that support from already established sanctuaries and having that community and helping each other out um, with Amber mentioning the, the parrots and the birds and people coming out and helping each other out, especially here in BC. We had the BC wildfires. Um, we had the flooding. Um, I know everywhere in the world, around the world, there's a lot of larger events climate change is bringing on. So it's more than ever, it's extremely important for people to look at these things. And I do feel it's something important that we need to talk about. Um, is there any information tips, any thing that your team has found is a big hurdle within these um, kind of blocks, contingency, emergency and succession planning that people do find it the hardest to get over and pretty much tips, information. I think the biggest challenge that people find is there's so much to do in sanctuary and there's so much just organization stuff to do that unless there is literally an emergency happening, it can feel hard to want to budget the time to do it, but it is so, so important to do it. Um, we created a little contingency planning worksheet that is for you know staff or board and it's very simple it's just meant to be really conversational because a contingency plan isn't meant to be like this giant like oh here's five pages on what to do it's just 
here's what's happening, here's who we call, here's the supplies, here's what we're gonna do. Because when you're in an emergency mode, that's what kind of time you have. You're not gonna go like, oh, let me go through the manual and be like, oh, barn's on fire. Well, part one is the barn on, you know, it's just like, you just gotta move. And like, when you're talking about resident lives or even caregiver lives at stake, there is no time for that kind of reference. So having contingency planning, it can feel really scary and big because you're like, well, how do I plan for everything that could happen? And it's like, well, you just start. You just start by like, what's the most likely disaster that could happen? And then you can kind of whittle down to like, what's a lesser disaster that could happen, but still could possibly happen. And you just have a conversation and, and you know, just really just create very simple structure like you know the contingency planning like binder that we recommend is just kind of just like okay it's just like maybe like barn on fire or maybe it's like there's a flood or maybe there's like the roads out and just go from there and so that you just have something that you, everyone knows exactly what to do so that because in times of emergencies you don't really have a lot of time to be like processing things and doing things so everything that you can create into like a very quick actionable thing could very potentially save a lot of lives. So I know it's scary to think about it, especially like, okay, well, when I'm gonna do contingency planning, cause you know, I gotta feed the birds and I gotta go muck some stalls and I gotta go fix this fence. But like, it doesn't have to be a really overwhelming process. And even if it seems really simple, it's still so much better than having nothing. And you know, succession planning, it's kind of the same block. It's the same block of like, well, I don't know when I'm going to stop doing this when I'm, you know, because I'm so busy today and I'm so busy tomorrow. And like, you know, but the more that you can even just very simply just start to picture like, where do I, where do I see myself at the end of all this? And like, how do I get there? And what needs to be in place? Then you don't have to worry about there being this burnout crisis at the end of your time at the sanctuary, you can just very comfortably transition the organization into its next step, which is so much better for everyone involved than kind of just dropping everything and running away screaming, which hopefully no one has ever done. But, um, and succession planning is also important as a matter of contingency planning. Um, you know, like what if you, someone you just is no longer with the organization or like for whatever reason has no longer you have no longer have access to that person and like maybe it's the shelter manager or maybe it's it's just these key organizational roles that like the organization would be very challenged to suddenly not have so like i just i think it's just really important i know it's hard to find the time to do it but even if it's very simple even if you're just like I think in 10 years, I'm going to want to step down and find a replacement for me or like, and like, this is how I want it to go. Even if you can just do that and communicate it and be like, hey, I'm thinking like, you know, I can do this for 10 years or whatever. And you're transparent with people and you can really start to think through. I think that really does make a big difference um, for the organization. And Amber wrote a really wonderful resource called a founder's guide to organizational change. change yeah yeah a founder's guide to organizational change that really kind of tackles some of these issues and some of the ways that a sanctuary can practically um, work on them and resolve them i think one other thing is it's sort of helpful to you know so like my background is caregiving and so I totally understand that there's always something, right? Like there's always something that needs to be done. 
And it felt like there was always something that like wasn't getting done because something else was getting done. And so I think all these things, succession planning, contingency planning, like tying it back to the residents can help make it not because it is important. And I feel like that helps like emphasize when you really think about like what it does for the individuals to have this in place or to not have this in place sometimes is what caregivers need to like get something done. If that, if that makes sense, because sometimes it feels like this other like administrative thing that's like, you know, worst case, we'll just figure it out. But it's like, but really it does have a direct impact on the residents, whether it's not being prepared for a certain type of emergency situation that comes up or not being prepared when there is some sort of like leadership change or, you know, a gap between people filling spots like that can have like a really significant impact on care and like what people can do. So I think tying it back to that is helpful. Um, I was just going to, I'm trying to find my train of thought now. That was like really, that's always really good to her with that particular thing is tying it back to the residents. Um, when it comes to things that seem like really dry paperwork, but like, oh no, actually. Um, but I was kind of thinking with like the succession planning, some of the, that one is particularly challenging a lot of times because, uh, you, you go into something and I've, you know, there's a number of people have founded a sanctuary where you think I'm going to do this forever. You know, like this is, this is what I meant to do. And this is what I'm going to do until, you know, like, I just can't possibly do it anymore. Well, part of it is like, well, that, that can't possibly do it anymore. Can like, you can't, you can't, you know, know everything that might happen and hopefully you'll live wonderful, long, healthy lives, but things like happen. And that's part of that contingency. Like, what if you become ill? What if you become injured even, or you have a family member who's ill that you need to step back and take care of? There's like all these different things. Um, and one thing that can be really hard is uh, letting go of those spaces too. And so sometimes it helps, like if you're in the early stages or you're considering starting a sanctuary, like when is the best time to start like succession planning? It's like, even before you've officially started it. Yeah. Like as soon as possible, like going in with a, you know, kind of a strategy in mind, like it doesn't have to be really intense, but just the idea of like this, I'm, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And I know that there's going to be, you know, a time where someone else is going to need to take on certain responsibilities and understanding that that there is no failure in that, like that, that it's a positive thing. It's that like you are starting this really important thing. And at some point, like passing the baton to someone who has these skills to keep running with it. Um, it's, it's actually really beautiful if a really challenging thing. And so like, just, just coming to it at that point is like succession planning, you stepping back does not mean failure. It, it can mean success. It can mean like you did it, like you've done this thing and you've set it up in such a way that it can now flourish, you know? So that's just kind of like those thoughts. It's scary, but as early as you can uh, start thinking and even before you even started the, officially the sanctuary, like thinking in those terms can be really helpful. And it can really, I think, help the founder um, like emotionally. Um, because it's, it's not easy ever, you know, um, 
even if it's like, you know, it's really necessary. And so starting early and start thinking about those things and just taking small steps even, um, you know, could be a big, big help there for everyone. I feel like um, Tara and Amber did such a great job of pointing out the importance of focusing on the resident uh, when it comes to when it comes to succession planning, I'm also glad that you mentioned the question of wills, because that's a highly emotional process for a lot of people. No one wants to contemplate their own mortality. And I feel like succession can also have personal feelings creep in if it's a discussion that's being had organizationally. You know, you might get people who have feelings about that at thinking, um, are you trying to push me out even? Um, it can be it can be a whole thing, and it can be very emotional and very fraught. But I think fundamentally, if you're going to, the best lens potentially is to consider that you serve an organization that has a mission and a vision, and it is that mission and vision um, that needs to have longevity. And as an organization, you have a public trust. You hold a public trust. You're accountable to the larger public. And you have to um, serve to the furtherance of your mission and vision before anything else. And it's not personal. None of it is personal when you, when you make a will or when you make a succession plan or any of these kinds of measures. It's your job to serve your organization, your organization's mission to do these things. And as much as it kind of stinks to think about potential things like mortality or, you know, need to retire before you want to or you know even the, the sort of paranoid is are they trying to get rid of me like it's it's not about you it's about the mission vision and as tara said it's about your residents fundamentally yeah and i think for us as me and my partner the will thing only came up as an importance when we had children and that made it important. And so I see I, I there's this correlation with that, with your individuals that you're taking care of. And I think why this is such an important subject to me is because in our first year of operation, we had two sanctuaries closed and it had that burnout, compassion fatigue situation where they were like, they had no, no contingency planning in place. They had no succession planning in place. It was literally like, we can't do this anymore. Um, we're done. And um, it does create this panic um, because what happens to those individuals and a lot of sanctuaries are full, if not over full here in Canada. I don't know in the U S probably it's pretty same, probably the same. Yeah. yeah. Roosters and pot belly pigs are number one homing requests and everybody's so full. I do feel making sure you have all your ducks in a row, if that's vegan enough to say, um, <laughs> is so important and everybody is coming from this from the, the the bottom of their hearts and in such a good space for why they want to help but it is a hard job it, it's very heartbreaking it's and it really goes into the mental fatigue that can go into it and I know you you also have a resource on that with the the, the emotional impact and we did discuss it in the webinar that we did um, together. So don't think, don't think you, the other things that have happened to other sanctuaries won't happen to you with regards to reaching that point where you just can't do it anymore. So starting early, I love what you said. 
with regards to um, Julia, with regards to, do, I think Amber, you said it actually too, with like, do it at start, do a lot of the paperwork, do a lot of the like volunteer manuals, do all that stuff at the beginning when you just have like five individuals to take care of so that you can have all those blocks in place. Um, it's so important. Well, I was going to say too, Julie, you hit on something with that as like those feelings um, of being like, am I being pushed out or is it this? Like, that's very real. And it's, and it's understandable to have those fears. Um, there's, you know, like that's very human. Um, and one thing that can happen a lot with challenging with succession planning is this merging identity for founders, which is like, you are the sanctuary and it's hard. It, it's an understandable you know, enmeshment to happen because you put so much of yourself into it. And so like that can be really challenged, like letting go a little bit. Um, and all these things are normal to feel like I want, you know, founders to understand that even though it's like, yeah, it is, it is important for you to like have the succession plan and to step away um, potentially at some point, you know, it's, that's, it's okay to have difficult feelings about it is but it's like and just knowing that that's normal and knowing that like it's normal but also processing that it's like you don't want to be the sanctuary like that's not that is not the goal it's not going to be good for you and ultimately for the sanctuary is you know I know that someone would want it and so learning here's okay here's a big thing having outside interests I know everyone's listening and so they're like what are those? We don't have those. Sanctuary founders can't have outside interests. So, um, but I would really encourage like anything you were doing beforehand or something, some even, even something small, just finding something that uh, brings you joy or peace outside of the work you specifically do um, for the sanctuary can start early in helping that later challenging process. Um, you know, like help you start uh, before it, you know, actually becomes that really big difficult moment where you're learning, okay, it's time. It's time for me to like start taking that step back. And if you have a few other things out there that also like, you know, give you life, you know, um, that can be really helpful. So, Yeah. It's helpful to know it's actually a, it has a term called, is it founder syndrome? Founders it's, it's a nonprofit. It can be really challenging. I think we actually have like a list of like some in common. I love how we put like symptoms as though it's like like this disease you can catch. Like it's like watch out, you know. Like so, um, but there there's a lot that goes into it when you pour your you know heart and soul into something. A lot of these, it's just really it's really common, and it's nothing to be ashamed of if you find like oh I actually line up with a number of these. Like I tick some of these boxes that is okay. Like it's, there's no shame there. It's just like, it's self-evaluation like, oh, okay. Just the same with like burnout or something like, oh, I'm taking some of these boxes. So now is a good time for me to like self-reflect and see what I can do to kind of, you know, um, make some healthier, uh, choices for myself for the sanctuary. So there's like, you know, getting rid of the stigma of founder syndrome. Like it's not, it's not bad that you are human and you're, you know, and you've, oh, suddenly like, um, are having a hard time letting anyone else do the thing because you know that if you, you know, you ultimately are the one that can just do it. And so like, why would you hire someone? Cause I'll, I'll just do it. You know, little things like that, super normal, super, you know, like no shame in it, but just like recognizing it 
and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm doing some of these things. So maybe I need to like take a minute and think, okay, how can I start processing some of this in a way that um, is healthier for the individual? And also then it will be for the sanctuary as a whole too. So, yeah. yeah Amber did such a good job with that resource. Cause I feel like it's such a, um, a touchy subject and, and has a lot of stigma with it where it's either like people being like a, that person has founder syndrome or like someone being so adamant that like that would never ever happen to them. Cause that only happens to like a certain type of person. Um, so that resource is really great. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not making this up, but I might be, I think this is from Amber's resource, but it could be from something else. But I, I feel like also like recognizing, acknowledging, celebrating that like like the, the characteristics, the traits, the drive, the skills that one might need to start something like yes. that's incredible. And not everybody has that, but then that might mean that someone else with different skills can do certain things, whether it's yeah. continue to move it forward or just take on certain responsibilities. Like that doesn't have to be seen as some sort of like deficit on someone's part that they don't have these skills. It's like, but you have the skills to make it happen and sort of celebrating that and figuring out like what your little like niche can be or what your role can be and realizing that like no person is going to be able to do like all the things and do all the things well. Yeah. So just like yeah, sort of like yeah. shifting that. Yeah, and it, it really- Oh, sorry. I just want to say quickly, it really reminds me of a quote. Um, if you want to go somewhere fast, do it alone. If you want to go somewhere far, do it together. So that's just what I thought of with you both. Go ahead, Mackenzie. I was just going to make a confession that I have definitely experienced founder syndrome <laughs> with open sanctuary. Like I definitely have had like moments where I'm like, I am spiraling and nobody's going to help and it's going to be awful. And I have to do this because, you know, when you start out and you're just like, okay, well, it's just on me. And if it's, and if it's not on me, it just ends you. That's a really hard mindset to really let go of and to just be like, no, like this is a new thing. It's not an extension of myself and my ego and my ability. And like, it takes processing to like really recognize it and recognize that it's like you are like you know i realized that i'm like okay i am micromanaging i have a wonderful team they all know so much they are so passionate and i need to trust that they know what's going on and that it's hard sometimes even when you're working with the most wonderful group of people that i've ever met just to get to that point so like there's no shame in it but you do have to do something about it or else it'll it'll snowball. I do I do think it's a good point to raise too that especially as like organizations get bigger, which I realize doesn't necessarily apply to us, but when you have an organization that gets bigger and has all these different departments, this idea of like the things that come with founder syndrome, I think sometimes people are like, well, I didn't found the organization and therefore I am immune to, you know, this thing, but it's like, you know, you can have a situation where somebody comes on and they start a whole new department or they're leading like the animal care, which is totally separate from maybe the founder and like the ED and stuff. And so it's just really easy to get when you're really dedicated, when you've done a lot of work to get attached to yeah. this role and to have that melding of like, I am this. And that's a conversation that came up when we were having 
um, one of our calls on, on micro sanctuary, not to like bring it back to that, but like this idea that instead of having this thing that is like separate from your life where it's like your job and then your job seeps into like every other aspect of your life is having your life and like having part of your life being that you care for animals, which just like switches it a little bit. And, and not that micro sanctuary isn't overwhelming and that you can't have capacity issues and that you don't need to plan for all these things, but um, it can, in some circumstances, make a little bit more room for like a multidimensional life or without feeling like you're giving up aspects of your life in order to, you know, like when I started working at a sanctuary, I, you know, gave up my apartment. I, you know, dragged my boyfriend like into the country because that's where the sanctuary was. Then we like moved across the country. Um, and, and it was a lot of like, I don't want to say forced because it was a decision, but it had a lot of like massive like ripples as opposed to, you know, cantaloupe moving in with us does have a ripple because of course, but it's not the same, you know, it's not like um, this abrupt change in our life to do this thing. This is unrelated, but I feel like it sort of has to do with like contingency, but since um, y'all are in Canada and we're in the US, I feel like it makes sense to plug that like people know that High Path Avian Influenza is out and about and we do have a resource about it um, if folks are looking for guidance or, or more information. Cause that's something I definitely think like, folks should be prepared for even if it's not in your area so that you're not scrambling. Um, if there's a case. Thank you so much to the Open Sanctuary team for coming on today. If you would like to learn more and to see their resources, do check out their website, opensanctuary.org. Thank you for joining us today. And until next time, take care.